Well, good morning. Once again, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for that. Yes, uh, my family enjoyed a great time at the beach last Sunday, and I trust that you were well served by our brother Daniel Williams, but it's certainly good to be back. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture, if you would, to Daniel chapter 12. And we are going to be continuing on in the same very long prophecy that was introduced way back in chapter 10, which probably just feels like forever ago at this point. We're going to look at the four verses of this concluding section today. But in order to get our hands around the context, just a brief recap seems appropriate. After the whole, the whole you know, all of chapter 10 is an introduction to this vision, and then it kind of the verbal vision starts, properly speaking, in chapter 11, and we hear about this war between the north and the south, uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Seleucids kind of in north Syria, Ptolemies in the south, with the people of God in between. We hear a back and forth and back and forth, and then the text in chapter 11 zooms in on one particular piece of scum, Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy that we saw back in Daniel chapter 8, and he gets something like 14 verses before verse 36 transition to someone who certainly sounds like Antiochus Epiphanes, but unlike him, to whom royal majesty had not been given, this, this individual is actually called a king, and I certainly don't have time to make the case here, but what it seems like for a number of different reasons is that at verse 36, we move on from Antiochus Epiphanes, and we move to an end-time Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes being a type, and then this being the anti-type, the full and final expression of Antiochus Epiphanes, this abomination that causes desolation. And so, right on the heels of that, we read these four verses. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But every, uh, excuse me, but, that, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so the angel who has been narrating this vision says at that time, which causes us to wonder, what time? We've talked about this last time we were together. And we're looking for an antecedent time here. At that time presupposes that we're supposed to know what he's talking about. There's been a thought flow here. And if you look back at verse 40, I suggested that is exactly what he's talking about. At the time of the end, suggesting that the end of chapter 11 and, the, and then moving into chapter 12 all takes place as a culminating series of events. All takes place as a culminating series of events. 
And so whatever we have represented here in the first four verses of chapter 12 is happening in conjunction with this end-time Antiochus Epiphanes-like king leader. And at that time, the angel mentions Michael for the second time in the book. He was already mentioned in chapter 10. He calls him the great prince who has charge over your people. And we discussed back in chapter 10 when he was doing battle with the prince of Persia. It just sounds, if we're honest, it just sounds so bizarre to our ears to think about territorial angels doing battle on behalf of the people of God. And yet, here it is in black and white. Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. One of the chief princes who shows back up in Revelation chapter 12, fighting the devil in his angels in heaven. And you're like, what on earth is this? This is a powerful being. It is the angel who has charge of God's people. The word translated here, has charge over, is more literally stands watch over God's people. Now, how exactly does that work? What are the mechanics of territorial angels? I have no idea, and neither do you. But that's what it says. That he is the archangel of the people of God. Now, the ESV misses something that is like a wordplay here in the Hebrew. Because the word stands or stands watch is actually the same word as arises. Arises. At that time shall arise, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. The, new, the King James and the New King James preserve the wordplay in the English. At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, I think that's important because it seems to be very closely related to the second half of the verse. Second part of the verse. There's three parts. So after that happens, after Michael stands up from standing watch, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. What it sure seems to suggest is that the standing up, standing aside of the one standing watch over God's people is they plays some kind of precipitating role in this great trouble. Um, given how Michael's already been pictured, it's very difficult to understand this as like, there Michael was sitting, you know, playing cards with the angels, and then he then arose Michael, and he finally got it into gear or something like that. Or just, just kind of like we would say, well, then there arose a king in the north. That's not the language here. Michael, he's already pictured as just being a destroyer, this powerful angel who's fighting on behalf of God's people. The idea that this is supposed to mean finally Michael steps up into action um, uh, doesn't seem to be following how we've even just heard Michael describe in, in the text already. But also, it would be odd to think that finally, if, if this is supposed to mean that Michael is finally suiting up for battle, isn't it odd that when he suits up for battle, it happens to be the worst time for his people? It just doesn't really seem to coincide with what we've seen already. What I'm suggesting is that however we want to understand the precise nature of Michael standing up or standing 
uh, standing aside, standing in position as the one who, who generally stands watch, is that Michael is letting something happen for a time. It's related to this. When Michael stands up, this tribulation happens. That's the idea. And I certainly don't have time to make a credible case for it. But you may recall my admittedly controversial view in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the restrainer is the, the restrainer of the man of lawlessness is Michael. Still my view. But you go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 um, uh, uh, and you can see the case that I make for that. And by the way, while I'm you know, saying controversial things with no time to justify them, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll register my suspicion that it is also Michael in Revelation 20 who descends and binds uh, Satan. And it is when that um, restraint is released that you get the deceptions of the nations. That's, but that's not why we're, it's not why we're here. I, I just wanted to say that, though. There is an unprecedented time of tribulation for God's people, a great distress. And yet, at that time, same phrase, third sentence of the verse, at that time, we got at the time of the end, 1140, at, the, at that time, 121, and then at that time again in the back uh, part of 12.1. But at that time when all this is going on and this, the, 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 this, this end time king persecuting and, and opposing God and then Michael standing aside, standing up, at that time your people shall be delivered. Your people shall be delivered. And he makes an immediate caveat. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The book is part of the visionary imagery here, but what's denoted by it is not. God knows His own as a matter of divine record. This is that Luke 20, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what this is talking about. There is a finality to it. There is a divine register. It's already there, which is going to come back. We're going to come back to that as we move forward. Here's why that's important. Final judgment is not final deliberation. It is final proclamation. Final judgment is not final deliberation. Hmm. Is this person a Christian? Did they do enough? Are they actually, were they actually imputed with Christ's righteousness? It isn't entirely clear. No. As we'll continue to see, final judgment is not final deliberation. It is simply a proclamation of something that has already been determined decisively forever. The angel saying, those whom heaven has already registered will be delivered. As we have seen in Daniel, that doesn't mean that they won't go through the hardship. We saw this, we talked about this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? They will be preserved through it. They will ultimately be delivered. It will not have the last word over them. This incredible time of persecution, incredible time of tribulation, will not have the last word over the people of God. And then I think we get 
What I would suggest in conjunction with the Isaiah 26 passage that was read first, where the, where the earth will give birth to the dead. What an image of resurrection. I think here we get the, perhaps the clearest picture of bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That dust of the earth. Do you hear the every commentator who writes on this passage notice the Eden language of this? Man came from dust, and at the very end, they will come out of dust to live forever. We're going we're to see that again in the sky above in just a second, in verse 3. But many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now I should pause to say that some of you come out of backgrounds, uh, particularly dispensational backgrounds. If you don't know what that is, that's fine. Don't even, don't even look it up. But some backgrounds, okay, uh, where are our brothers and sisters... Uh, great folks who love Jesus, to be very clear, would disagree that what is pictured here is bodily resurrection because they needed some things to fit into the timeline to make it work, and you can't have bodily resurrection at this point for, for kind of that story of things to happen. What's being referred to here then? Well, it's the resurrection, it's the spiritual resurrection of Israel as a nation. Okay? Haven't you read Ezekiel 37? The valley of dry bones. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So you hear that and you're like, oh, okay. Well, maybe there's something there. Maybe initially that feels like there's, there's weight, but it's actually fairly clear that Ezekiel 37 is talking about a work that God is going to do in the hearts of His people so that they will know He is the Lord. Okay? The raising from your graves of Ezekiel 37 is how people are going to end up being raised from the dust in Daniel chapter 12. The most decisive point in favor of this is verse 14, where it talks about the exact nature of the coming to life here out of the grave. The exact nature of the coming to life out of the grave. It says, I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live. The, the, the nature of the coming to life is the giving of the spirit, which is why... Uh, we, we know that Daniel 12 is not talking about this because the awakening of those in the dust includes people who don't have the Spirit at all. That's why their fate is everlasting shame and contempt. Ezekiel 37's resurrection, spiritual. The resurrection of the inner man. Daniel's resurrection, resurrection of the body. 
Again, something that we are going to come back to. Daniel's resurrection includes people who will have life everlasting and contempt and shame everlasting. Ezekiel's resurrection here is a resurrection. I'm putting my spirit to you. I'm imparting spiritual life to you. And so the resurrection of Ezekiel 37 is how you get to, you might say, if you want to put it really candidly, the resurrection of Daniel 12. You'll notice something that might seem initially odd. I haven't mentioned it yet because I wanted you to mull over it. The word many. What's up with this word many right here? Many of those who sleep in the dust. Doesn't everyone get resurrected on Christian theology? I mean, doesn't everyone get resurrected either to eternal life or death? What's the, what's the many? Some people have tried to say, well, what really, if you're listening carefully here, many means all. And the primary response is many means many. Okay? So that's not a good interpretation. Uh, it's much safer to go with, no, many means many. At least because we don't have any reason to think otherwise. The view that best fits the context is the reason it says many is because we are zooming in on a subset of those who are going to be resurrected. Namely, the folks who are delivered from the, tr the, the trouble that was just described. The idea is saying not even the worst trouble that will ever befall the people of God is enough to thwart the resurrection. And the many is zooming in on that subset of people that we just read. Because not everyone will endure this. Okay? Mercifully, in one sense. Not everyone will endure this, but the, the point seems to be even this is not enough to thwart God's plan. And even those many of those, not all of them, there are some people who are going to experience this and they, and they won't. They, they won't rise to life. Some will rise to death. And then some people, of course, mercifully will not have to endure this particular heightened time of persecution at all. I think that's the best way to try to do, to be honest with what the text actually says in context. That the many is a reference to those who would ex have experienced what comes directly before it. And before we move on, I just want to, to pause and to ask you to think about the horror, the utter horror of having a resurrection body, but not a glorified one. You see it here. You see it in Revelation chapter 20. Everyone is raised in a body for judgment. There's no one who's a ghost at judgment. No one's floating before God like Casper. But not everyone has a glorified resurrection body. And the idea of everlasting contempt here makes it very clear that this is not referring to some kind of annihilation that has everlasting effects. No, 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 that's not it. Because if you're being careful... The, the two everlastings have to mean the same thing in the verse, right? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake some to everlasting life. Exper an experience, an everlasting experience of life. Doesn't that have to mean the same thing in the next clause? And some to shame and everlasting contempt. To be the object of contempt and shame forever and ever. 
And so I'll simply pause right in the middle and say, everyone here, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, you have an opportunity to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And Jesus Christ, because he was raised, so too can we. There is the hope of the gospel. And in verse 3, we see a description of, a, of the glory that awaits the wise. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Again, we get more Genesis language here. Here at the end, we get language of the beginning. It's so beautiful. The brightness of the sky above. You might have a superscript number even in your Bible that takes you down to the bottom and says something like the expanse or the expanse of the heavens or whatever. It's the same language from Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And we read something that sounds very New Testament here, actually. Very discipleship sounding. That it's not just the wise who are going to shine, but those who turn many to righteousness. That turn other people to righteousness. And the commentators go back and forth. Is this just a description? Like every Christian's a disciple maker? Is this like no talking about teachers and singling them out? It's not, it's not really clear. It's not clear whether it's describing two kinds of people or two angles of the same person, namely a, a believer. But those who are wise, foundationally grounded in the fear of the Lord, will be glorious. That's the main point. They will shine like the stars forever and ever, like the brightness of the sky above. We're going to come back to this in application. This is one of my favorite points to wear out. Everyone's so tired of hearing me talk about how glory is coming, but you get one more round of it today because we never need to forget it. And finally, the angel turns to Daniel or whatever he's doing exactly. And he says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Till the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We've already heard similar language here of sealing up, sealing the book. These prophecies, these beacons of hope, these are going to be needed by God's people to endure. They are. We've read about what's coming. Daniel knows what's coming. The angel has told him in this verbal vision what's coming. And it isn't a garden of roses for the people of God, including this time of unprecedented trouble. He's been told to write it down. This, this is language of sealing up. This is preservation language at that time. Seal it so it doesn't spoil kind of a thing. Protect it. Guard it so that it can be passed down for future generations, and perhaps even for the folks currently rebuilding in the land at this time, rebuilding the, the temple and the wall. Certainly the most difficult part of this small but very potent passage is this last little phrase. When I read it, most of you probably went, what on earth does that mean? And guess what? When you open up the, the scholars who comment on this passage, they say things like this, what on earth does that mean? Okay? Okay. Um, 
I'd say a little bit more than that, thankfully. But uh, some people want to say, well, what this means is that people are going to run to and fro through the book of Daniel so that they can understand what he's saying. Okay, like a super metaphorical <laughs> running, you know. I'm going to run through the pages of Daniel so, so that they can have knowledge. Um, I think I, that I think is very implausible. The, the going to and fro language is, re- is literally a roaming or a seeking after. It's the, it's the language that Satan uses in Job. Where have you been? I've been, you know, going to and fro, I've been going throughout the earth, and then Job gets, you know, volunteered for a horrible assignment there. This is the, I'm going, I'm seeking after something. I think we're on much safer ground to follow similar language from a place like Amos 8.12. Listen to what we read there. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So in this case, what I would suggest is we aren't getting a description of people who are really wanting to press into the word of God, running through the pages of Daniel, but it's saying that near this time of the end, there are going to be people who are going to try to find solutions, try to find the truth, try to find knowledge that leads to something, try to find something to anchor their hope, especially at this time, especially when it gets really, really bad. And whatever truth that knowledge might be laced with, it is not a truth that, unlike what Daniel was just told to preserve, is the special revelation of God. It does not give life. It does not bring hope. It is an empty bill of goods. And so I think the best way to read it is like this. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So we pause here before turning to the very last section of the book of Daniel and concluding our journey and we ask the questions that we've asked many times. How do we sing Zion's songs in a foreign land? A few things I want to point out here. First thing is I want us to remember that our hope is better than heaven. People rightly say that on a death of a believer that they are in the presence of God in heaven. They are certainly correct. No more pain. No more sin, no more suffering, no more depression. And yet, so understood, heaven is not the end game. It's not. Resurrection and renewed creation is the end game. Heaven gets very little attention in the New Testament. Do you realize that? Sometimes it's called paradise. Sometimes it's called Abraham's bosom. You know what gets all of the attention? Resurrection, new heavens, and new earth. Passages like this remind us that the fall brought on by Satan doesn't win. It's not as though Adam was promised the world, disobeyed, and as a result, now... There's a a spiritual inheritance. That's not it. 
That's not it. It's not a disembodied eternal state. That is not the Christian hope. That is the intermediate state. It's what theologians call it. Intermediate state. But that's not the end game. What that sounds like is Satan's plan trumps God's plan. When the good news of the gospel is that Christ succeeded where Adam failed and thunderously won recreation for us. That's the hope. He is the first fruits from the dead. The first fruits of recreation. I've told this story multiple times, but real life illustrations about why theological nuances matter are sometimes hard to come by. So I keep recycling this one. I had a professor in seminary who was in Malaysia teaching, and he had uh, Anna, a beautiful, beautiful little girl, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old, riding her bike, and she rode off a cliff and died. They found her down there, mangled up with her bike. And I remember Todd telling me, he was a Hebrew professor, tell me the story. And he said that day, and you know, everyone was just trying to say anything to, you know, make, make ourselves feel better. It was just so horrible, you know, just trying to say anything. And she had apparently had a scar somewhere on her body, and one of his, his friends there said, um, hey, well, now her body no longer has that scar. When he, at the time, he was like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you know, just whatever. And he said, but as I thought about that later, I realized what he said, and he wasn't like being critical, but he's like, what, what, what that brother said actually wasn't true. Because she doesn't have a new body yet. He said, her and I are still awaiting the same thing, just in different places. We are both arms locked together awaiting the renewal of our bodies. And that gave him incredible hope and solidarity with his daughter. Just the idea that our hope is better than heaven. Heaven is great! The presence of God. But even the souls under the altar in Revelation are asking, how long, O Lord? It's almost like people in heaven feels like they're complaining. What's up with that? There's a groaning for something more. Our hope is better than heaven, and that matters. Number two, our destiny has been sealed by the resurrection of Christ. In Romans chapter 4, we find a critical but somehow glossed over verse in the Protestant tradition. You can go read about why it's glossed over now because now people have realized it's been glossed over. But Romans 4, 23-25 has Paul talking about Abraham being counted righteous as the father of all who have faith. And here's what we read. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, that is to say, for Abraham's sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. 
Protestant catechisms and confessions largely historically, you can go back and look. I just read a doctoral student's essay on this. They are shocked. They don't know what to do with this. How does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with my being declared righteous in Paul's theology? If someone were to ask you, how how does the resurrection relate to justification? what, What would you say? What would you say? It's not like some intuitive answer, by the way. Well, well, the resurrection was proof that Jesus was who He says He was. Yeah, absolutely. But how does that relate to my justification exactly? The doctrine of justification. Well, the atonement. Jesus died on the cross. Oh, okay, so the atonement relates to my justification. Understood. So how does the resurrection relate to my justification? It is... My great delight to suggest to you that what we see here in Daniel 12, a resurrection that's scheduled for the end of all things, which is what the Jewish expectation was, certainly, happened in the middle of history for one man. Which was why it was so scandalous. Remember when Lazarus died? What is sister? Oh yeah, I know we'll see him again. The resurrection at the end of the world. There was no concept of someone rising in the middle of history like that. Not in a glorified body like that. Not a resuscitation. I would suggest that in light of our union with Christ, the central tenet of Pauline theology, just as Christ received an end-timed verdict over Him in the middle of history, so have we. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit. Translated vindicated, so you don't think that Jesus needed forgiveness of sins. But the word is justified. Justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here's what Beale says. The resurrection that was to occur at the very end of the world, Daniel 12, has begun in Jesus' bodily resurrection. Jesus' own resurrection was an end-time event that vindicated or justified Him from the wrong verdict pronounced on Him by the world's courts. The vindication of God's people against the unjust verdicts of their accusers was to happen at the end of time, but this has been pushed back to Christ's resurrection and applied to Him. And so, this might be a new concept for you, but justification has two aspects to it. Not two justifications, two aspects of the same thing. One, Ezekiel 37, involves resurrection of the inner man, credited with righteousness. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up with Him, Ephesians 2. That's the first part of justification, initial justification. Second part, resurrection of the outer man. Final vindication, final justification of God's people. This is the aspect of it you see in Daniel chapter 12. And you hear it on the lips of Jesus and even Paul in Romans chapter 2. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 2. There is an eschatological nature to justification. 
There will be a reckoning. There will be a here are mine. Here's who was right. Here's who was wrong. These aren't two distinct phenomena. They're two aspects of one final phenomenon. It's like someone physically, someone who's been declared not guilty. They, it might actually take a couple of days for them to actually physically walk out of prison because there's got to be paperwork and stuff that processes. But it's not two separate events. It's really just a first and final part of the same thing. You are not guilty, you may go. That, that kind of a thing. This is what we see in Romans 6.5. So we've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so here's the takeaway here. When we repent and believe and we're declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, justification now is an advance on final justification. Sometimes employees request an advance on their paycheck. Okay? They get it ahead of schedule. But the whole reason they're able to do that is because it was already coming to them. The fact that it was already coming to them explains why they were able to get it in advance. So it logically preceded them getting it, even though them receiving the money temporally preceded payday. Does that make sense? They can take hold of it now because it's already guaranteed to them. And so too with justification and resurrection and final judgment. So I'm just going to tie it all together here. I want you to listen to this. I want this to wash over your soul and bring you comfort. I want you to listen to how one theologian puts it. Imagine at the final judgment where before the whole world, God raises to life and declares by name those who are righteous before Him. That there is an old school tin can intercom set up with a string on it that extends back into the present day. In initial justification, God allows believers the privilege of placing their ear to the tin can and hearing Him from the future call their name before the world so that they can enjoy an end-time verdict of sonship in advance. This is the argument for eternal security that you likely have never heard. Because... If justification, and it certainly is, is an eschatological declaration backed up into the future where we are declared righteous, then the idea of losing one's justification is not just poor theology, it's logically incoherent. It doesn't even make sense. Because the final declaration comes logically before the declaration when we repent and believe the gospel. It is we, when we are not guilty, that's the hearing the tin can from the future of a final judgment's already been pronounced over you. There, it doesn't make even sense to talk about how you could be justified if you were not already going to be. You can say the words, but it would be like saying a circular square. It's just gobbledygook. Christ has his own as a matter of register. Finally, and as a result, glory is coming. Here it is. One of my favorite points to wear out. And maybe this just says something about me. I'm not sure. 
You and I are not particularly good looking. We're not all rich. We're not all extremely smart. And very few of us are. Uh, 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 we aren't impressive. We aren't these things. We're not great, but only because we live in the already part of the kingdom of God. Because one day we will be great. Truly great. Not spiritually great. Not metaphorically great. Not like the person who won the Attitude Award at football camp. Okay? Actually great. In the light, in light of being talking about raised to everlasting life and everlasting contempt, C.S. Lewis's quote cannot be improved upon. Listen to what Lewis says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And for those who have repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, Real glory and greatness is come. Not the paradoxical greatness of humble yourself and you'll be humble yourself now. We're in the already stage of the kingdom of God. So that you will then be exalted. And as we've already talked about, Paul says that we'll judge angels. We'll judge angels, these kinds of creatures that Daniel's fallen out, even just listening to. It's because greatness is coming. And so as you hold these promises tightly, I want them to propel you to faith, encourage you, but I also want to guard you against trying to get an advance on your glory. Because we are people who love to get little tiny advances, little scraps of glory right now. Can I just get the tiniest little shred of glory right now and put it in my pocket? These pathetic little ways that we seek glory now, some little bit of recognition. Oh, this person's so solid. All that. I just want someone to tell me how such a great this I am. I want adulation. I want this praise. I want to be awesome at some. I'm, I'm desperately seeking to get an advance on the glory that's coming. I'm saying, just be patient. Humble yourselves. When you are exalted, you will not look back and say, Oh, for that first one billionth of my existence, I wasn't great. Because at that point you will be. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for a king who saves. Who calls the dead out of tombs. The hope of resurrection. 
We thank you for spilled blood, but we thank you for an empty tomb as well. Thank you for being raised to life for our justification. Thank you for declaring us not guilty. Thank you that because of such a declaration in your sovereignty that final judgment is not final deliberation, it is vindication. Lord, we pray that you would help us in wisdom seek after your truth and not run to and fro what is falsely called knowledge because you have given us the words of eternal life. Would you help us press into them, Lord? 